Welcome to Have a Dope Day Podcast. My name is Gabriel Lopez, and I'm here with Domas Montoya to discuss a very important and enlightened topic, his father, Jose Montoya. Hello. What's up, bro? What's up? How you doing today? I'm good. Are you nervous? A little bit. Yeah? I'm mad nervous. (laughs) Super nervous. (laughs) You got the questions. I know. That's why I'm nervous, because if I fuck this up, everybody's going to hear it. So... Let me just give you my history with this topic. Um, <clears throat> as you know, during the pandemic, I was learning a lot about the civil rights movement just because that was actually going on outside in our world at that time. And I wanted to try to understand where the previous picture comes from. And so I start looking into, I read Malcolm X's autobiography. Uh, it's narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. So it's super entertaining, super dope, but it's, powerful it's raw um and that led me to read a few different other books one of them was by cesar chavez and the united farm workers association and so in reading that book they would always talk about flyers and they would always talk about flags and signs and all these other different things and me painting cars not looking at the screen i'm thinking to myself like i wonder what these things look like and who made these like and so when i finally did get some actual dates out of the book, I would Google those dates and those dates would lead back to beautiful black and white pictures of just like thousands of people marching with Cesar. And uh, they had a lot of signs and they had a lot of other things that were associated with that. And just from my own experience in organizing something small, I was really intrigued by what does it take to communicate with 10,000 people, you know, across multiple cities, zip codes with no internet, with no you know, basically with no internet. How would you do that? The post office and the telephone is basically all they had. So one name that kept popping up was the RCAF. And me being a World War II nerd, I thought to myself, like, damn, he's in cahoots with the Canadian Air Force? Like, what the fuck is this? So no, it's talking about the Royal Chicano Air Force, which actually starts as the Rebel Chicano Art Front and later morphs into just Sacramento's history that I didn't even know was super plugged into it. Um, And the other thing that really kind of sat me down, literally sat me down was that the first time I was introduced to graffiti was on a mural by the Royal Chicano air force, the Southside park. I was probably seven years old, eight years old. My cousin is, uh, has all these tags in his room everywhere. He lived right down the street. And so from there I would always be intrigued. Like what's all this writing? And he'd tell me that's my blocka the fuck is that you know and he's like i'll show you walk down to Southside park and the mural is just blasted everywhere with everybody's just signatures and tags and i remember stepping back and thinking like what am i looking at here like i'm looking at is this all one thing are these multiple things like what am i looking at and like that image never left me and we would go by there to drop my grandma off to go to church and we would take off to go pick up cardboard. And every time I could, I'd sneak out of the truck and go take a peek at that thing, that mural. And so later on, when I found out that that was actually associated with a certain time frame, it really blew my mind. And in looking for more information from that time, that's how I come across you. Right. And like, here we are today. I haven't let you leave. I haven't let you like forget about me. So here we are. <laughs> You know, and we've had a pretty good relationship, too, that I'm proud of and I'm happy to know you. So basically, I just wanted to sit you down and have the conversation about your pops. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube you can look up, but it all kind of paints the same picture. And 
it is a beautiful picture. It's definitely worth looking up. Just in the search bar, look up Jose Montoya and he'll pop up. But I really wanted to get into more so about the stuff you didn't find out in those interviews. I know by trying to make something happen, it takes a lot of extra time, money, and coordination. And so your pops accredits one event to really seeing Cesar and being a part of the movement. He accredits one certain event, and that was the march from Delano, California to Sacramento, California. Um, I know it was over 25 days. I know he did it all by foot. I know it was he left with like 100 people, and they decided to take mainly back roads and little small streets and go by all the farm towns. And as they continue their journey here, they pick up a lot of momentum, momentum being people and support. And they would, you know, walk off the road if they could and camp or they probably sleep in somebody's house. But really, it was foot by foot. dude. And uh, I remember reading the book and they were trying to get him to like they were trying to get Cesar to like wear certain shoes, you know, and, and to do like to be a little more health conscious. And he's like, this is what they wear. So this is what I'm going to wear. This is what the people wear in the fields. This is what I'm going to wear. And I think when it comes to a no bullshit kind of guy like your pops, I think that main that means a lot, you know. So as they get to Sacramento, California on Easter Sunday, I think your pops was there. And I seen the pictures from that shit, too. And it was like basically tens of thousands of people in front of the, the state capitol just all kind of there in, in support. And I also heard another little fun fact that it took actually 30 minutes 30 straight minutes for all the marchers to cross the I Street Bridge because there's so many people. Dude, I can't even sit still for 30 minutes. Like, that's a lot of fucking people. So he's he's associated, your dad's associated with a very powerful thing even before his own powerful story starts. And so, like, I know that he comes from New Mexico and that he is actually, uh, I think he's like Pueblo Indian is his heritage. Is that or is that the family? Not Pueblo. Well, northern New Mexico is where they're from. Probably closer to Um, They're from Chihuahua area. We never really delved deep into what that actually, that connection was to the indigenousness was. But um, they were all light-skinned, fair-skinned. So Chihuahua area, New Mexico. They moved up into New Mexico. So, And I remember hearing him say in another interview that he was, they were a farm traveling working family farm workers yeah farm workers which means when you say a farm or a migrant family it usually means in that time frame like in the 60s and 50s that your kids and you would not go to school you, you as a household you would wake up at the crack of dawn you'd go out to the side of the field and you'd meet your quota every day and that meant everybody was out there by hand picking fucking slaving pregnant women um there were no bathrooms anywhere, no porta potties, so the women would have to just do their business wherever. Same thing with the men, and it was really rugged conditions. So for someone to grow up like that and to see that, I would think that the value of education would almost be the way out. It was crazy. Um, in hindsight, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, at the time, going to school seemed like extra. Like, what do you mean? School. Oh, more on my we're, plate. We need yeah. to, we're all working. Yeah. So school was not like a big priority at all. For him. Yeah. For the family. And there was a lot of siblings. So it was like, that was the reason to have so many kids is because 
it was like you had a little you had a little fleet of workers. And way to go, Grandpa! Huh? And so Fucking you just kept <laughs> kept making babies, and then your your that that brought in more income. So yeah. <clears throat> that the education wasn't really. You know, when they said they weren't going to school, it was not a big deal, really. Yeah, and there were no all. laws to like, no laws at all. Yeah, yeah, to make that a thing. Um, or enforcement. There wasn't enforcement. The enforcement. There you yeah. go. So, and the other thing was too. Um, I seen a picture, bro, and there was like a lot of fucking kids. Yeah. How many? What's his like? Like, what was his family like? How many people were in his immediate family? So. There was seven. There's not almost ten. It's eleven. Damn. There, he lost two siblings. There was two siblings that were lost in actually while they were traveling. Oh, that's two, two siblings uh, um, that were that they died as they were when they were babies. Yeah, just because of the, the conditions that were out there. But um, yeah, they were a big family, and he was um, he was right in the middle. He was kind of in the middle. Yeah, <clears throat> and so I know. Basically, grandma settles in California. Right, and. He goes. He, I heard a story of him going to try to join the Marines, and because of his, because he was Mexican, and the the um, the Department of Defense had a no gang member policy, which meant anyone that looked pachuco or or zoot suit, because even the the black homies wore zoot suits too. So like anybody associated with any kind of other culture would just be turned down. So he he says he goes to the Marine office, the Marine recruiters. They see it's like his little block on his hand, his tattoo, and they're like, nah. So he goes home, turns it into a fucking anchor, right? And thinks they're going to think I'm gun-ho, so they'll they'll let me in. He goes back, and they tell him, hell no. And so he just basically walks across the street to the Navy recruiters, <laughs> and they tell him, fuck it, let's go. <laughs> and so that, that begins his journey in the Navy. Yeah. And I know that just from my own research that, like, for you to be turned down for the service right. is, is wild for any branch. Right. They had so many jobs available from cooking to organized, just massive operations. So for you to be turned down, they really had to have some kind of like, fuck you and in, in part of it. You right. Know? And I think he knew that um, the GI Bill was the only way he would be afforded to go to school. Right. Because farm worker family, that's kind of, you know, check to check, like how we live out here right now. Mm -hmm. And so he works on a minesweeper. For how long? How long does that last? He was there. 51. So the funny story when you were talking about the the, the anchor, he had actually gotten in trouble. Uh, so even the service wasn't just like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna join the service. It was you got in trouble and judge said you can do time or you can. Oh, I wasn't even fucking enlist. patriotism. <laughs> he was <laughs> like, fuck it, I'm going this way. Nah. Good for him. <laughs> it was like, damn. He what, was just getting funneled from one one part of the system to the next. Do so you the remember judge what? Was like you could get locked up yeah, or yeah, you could yeah, join yeah. the service, and then then that's where the cross and the tattoo came in. Do you remember what the charge was? Why he got in trouble? Uh, it was something with contraband. <laughs> Illegal contraband. He had the thing on him. He's out walking around in the, in the 60s and shit, the 50s. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, and he was a, uh, like, he was down with the whole zoot suit dress and everything too, wasn't he? he well, he was born in, in 32. So when the, when the, so mid 40s, he was actually, it's funny because as, as time went on, even his artwork and his poetry highlighted that, that era. Yeah, it did. He was actually younger. Yeah, but he kind of took from it all the symbolism and all all, all the the, lang the the lingo. Yeah, yeah. But he was actually younger. 
he was actually a shoe shine boy for the actual pachucos that were. Because oh, in shit. 44, he was only 12. Yeah, in 44, it was cracking. So he wasn't that, you know, he wasn't yeah. at that age already where he was popping off on the corner like that. But yeah. <clears throat> he definitely did experience it firsthand. Where was his shoe shine spot at? It was all over um, um, Albuquerque. Oh, okay. All through Albuquerque at that age. And I, what I remember him talking about is, um, I don't know if you remember Lalo Guerrero. He was no, a, a really famous um, a musician from those times. And okay. He was like one of the first musicians, like a Chicano musician. And um, he would he remembers going and running errands for him when oh, he would come time. to Albuquerque because he would go through all the Southwest. So yeah. so he was and he would he did the song um, uh, a lot of the Pachuco original like Pachuco songs. Okay. So if you look up Lalo Guerrero, he did a lot of the original songs. And so when he was younger, traveling through the Southwest, my dad was kind of like his runner when they would come. Him and my dad and his buds. See, and that was one thing that intrigued me about him was I could listening to him, I could see street smarts in him. Right. And I and I was like, <clears throat> how does <clears throat> How does street smarts translate into a teacher or professor? Right. That's what really f- got me locked mm-hmm. to him. Really. Right. Right. And um, <clears throat> I think that's also one of the more powerful points of the overall story. Right. It doesn't matter where you get your weapons from as long as you aim them at the right things. You know, like right. you can make <clears throat> some shit happen. Um, I also think that that street smarts and that growing up with grit and just having to make it happen really really made him valuable to organizing and making anything happen. Cause you're used to making it happen out of just nothing, no support. Right. You just get it how you get it. And uh, that's also what really reminded me of like, they, you know, they were like the first graph writer mentality of their time. You know, there, there were no rules, you know, like you kind of took what you had and made something new and you just kept doing that and fuck who don't like it. And that's a lot of the same like theology we follow in graffiti. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that really intrigued me about him. Um, I think it's dope that he was young seeing all this happen because he's almost seeing it like the whole Pachuco movement as 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 like romanticizing it because he's young. Right. He was an observer. He was an observer. He was an observer. Yeah. So I'm thinking of like when Jay Z is talking about Nas up in the in the, yeah. beer, in the in the you know projects looking down as mm-hmm. opposed to down on the street making making moves mm-hmm. <clears throat> it affords you kind of like some freedom because yeah. you're not actively in it you're kind of just watching it as it happened and for sure that was his role but that part kind of got lost as he got older because because of his artwork and his poetry people just assumed oh he was there yeah. he was the way he dressed yeah. the way he talked he was there just he was just a little in a bit different younger. role yeah, and that changes yeah. everything because yeah, that afforded him the freedom to 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 remember write things down to, to draw things to paint things at that time so <clears throat> that was that was a little bit of different turn i know that when i was growing up my grandfather and my family members wanted to basically uh being a chicano or being mexican-american honestly i didn't really even understand the word chicano until like i met you i started researching it and um, also, the, you know, Cesar Chavez and the RCAF is part of that research. And so, like, it's really been a, a it's really been a like a, an amazing story to me just because it's like, holy fuck, this is where my uncles and aunts and cousins come from. This is why they talk like that. They're the third version of this, you know, like, and that's that's been wild. And so, like, that's one of the reasons why this story is real near and dear to my heart, just because it fucking makes a lot of sense. It explains a lot of things. And excuse me. 
I think too that we were taught to kind of put that away to not really don't tell anybody you're Mexican American. Don't talk ghetto. Don't, don't tell anybody how you live or where you live. You know, it's almost a pride thing, which makes a lot of sense, but you also lose a lot of that healthy pride in it. Right. <clears throat> and then, and at that time, so like in the fifties, for example, that was after world war two, assimilation was like a big deal. You, you didn't want to yeah. stand out at all. You wanted to blend in. Yeah as much as possible and so it was frowned upon that was the mexican-american yeah. era like yeah. attach it if you're gonna call yourself mexican you put the american part on it yeah and that was just normal across the board i think for all cultures it, exactly and that's why i heard i used uh in my world war ii research they they have like a funny side joke or like a side joke i'm gonna call it funny they say there's no japanese after world war ii you know because nobody wanted to be associated right. with japanese even though people were like from there, they were now claimed to be Chinese. And it was like that whole time frame is just brutal to anybody who's not white. And we always knew we were different. Like even in our own home growing up in the 90s and in the 2000s and all that, we always knew there was like a, uh, there was a difference between us and them, you know? And my pops wasn't really, didn't teach us to speak Spanish. Neither did my mom. My grandfather taught me a few words. They spoke Spanish. And because we were like mischievous children, we picked up on some of the words and we're like, oh, somebody's about to get fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like, you hear the word they're using? Like, right. that's bad. So that also presents a new challenge to me where it's like, who do I tell my children we are? Right. And that was one of the, the <laughs> real big things, too, that like it excited me when I started to learn about these people because I don't have the story from a school teacher's point of view. Right. I have the story from the people on the ground. Right. And so like, I'm super proud of that part that I, that I stumbled on it. I got to find it. And even now when I talk to my children, teaching them about racism, isn't through practicing racism. That's not the right way to do it. Right. But teaching them that racism is a, is a tool, you know, used by other people to hold other people down and that it's not actually real in the world. Like kind of like how time is, Right. You know, it's a construct of the mind. Right. And it's really up to you to stop that or promote that. And that's what Chicano was. Chicano was the first term where we actually named ourselves. Yes. That's what made it so different. It wasn't, oh, you guys are Mexican-Americans. And then later on, it was Latino. Yeah. And in the 80s, it was Hispanic. Chicano is the only term and continues to be the only term where we named ourselves. So yeah. nobody can take that. Nobody gave it to us. Yeah. We did it ourselves. And we got... Chicanos got flack from their own families because they were like, shut up, you know. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Just be Mexican-American. Yeah. Like, be yeah. cool. Like, what are you doing? So it was like making, it was almost kind of like making the spot hot at that time. But it, but as the 60s progressed, it was like, no, you have to you have to differentiate yourself. Yeah. And not only are you naming yourself, but it's a it's a term that is still connected to the original Mexica, yeah. Mexicano. You know, like, it's not totally branched off, you know, that we just created out of nothing. Yeah. But it was a term that we gave to ourselves, which changed, that changed the whole situation to, to this day. Like nobody can take it away because it was never given. And that's very powerful. It's almost like when people use the word, the N word, and it's like, in one sense, that word is very disrespectful. I grew up using it in another sense. Right. And that was like just camaraderie. Right. Like type shit. And so it's almost like taking something and making it good, but you still always are making it, your own kind of like rebranding that word, but it's still got roots in that word. Right. You know, and it's still 
still hurts. Mm-hmm. Or some people might have come from a different time where it doesn't really still hurts. Right. You know? And so having your own word from the very beginning is not just the beginning of different words, but it's the beginning of new thought, who we are, how much do we matter? How valuable <clears throat> are we? What actually do we hold? And in this, in the point of the sixties, it seemed like a lot of people were benefiting from the GI bill and other types of things that were allowing them to leave their neighborhoods and learn about the wider version of the world. And behind closed doors, you get a lot of teaching. Now, just because they're white doesn't mean they didn't face face like uh, hardship. All the Jewish people are white. You know what I'm saying? So you really get this like kind of on the down low, like we're kind of the same. Right. And you get a lot of real good gems from them. That other happened types during of the, 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 um, the depression. Yeah. So my dad was born during that area. So people from Arkansas, Oklahoma, all yeah. those people, the Okies and the Arkies, yeah. they were right there looking for jobs at yeah. the same farms that the, that the Mexicans were. Yeah. Japanese also, like they were looking. So they were on the same. So his relationship to even just European Americans was yeah. like, oh, there's a whole nother branch of white people who are kind of just like us, struggling yeah. just like us. And every other generation before him wouldn't have known that. No. So that's why that's And it possible. was the proximity. Like yeah. they were farm workers. They wouldn't have known that if they were living in the city, in, yeah. a, in an urban setting. Yeah. But the fact that they were living in a rural reality with people coming from the Dust Bowl to, towards California, yeah. they were all in the same boat. So that whole like discrimination between brown and white, it was kind of muddled because yeah. they were all just poor. Yeah. And looked down upon by the farmers who are another kind of white. You yeah, know, just like, a different level of poor. <laughs> just yeah. a different level, exactly. Yeah. They get treated better because they were white. Yeah. And so that that really like <clears throat> stuck with me learning about basically where this word Chicano comes from. That 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 was really powerful to me. Cause I I even asked my mom and she couldn't give me she could give me like the street version of it. Right. Like she can give me all the results of it. Right. And the and the characteristics of it. I just didn't know where it came from. Um and that word popped up a lot with, with Cesar Chavez's mm-hmm. movement. And so, like, that led me down a rabbit hole, bro. And that, that was really tight. And I'm still exploring it. It's still wild to me. It almost is like, it's almost, it is my word because it comes from my people. But at the same time, it's different now. Like, even the people who are Chicano now aren't the same. Like, not everybody speaks that way, talks that way, dresses right. that way. But it's just... I don't know. I don't no, know. Now I'm going there's, with that, that point, there's the there's the X thing now that's happening, right? Where they're putting the they're putting the X at the end because it's gender. They don't want it's it's more encompassing to add the X oh. at the end. So there's like a Latin X movement, and it's and that's crazy because it that's a new generation of folks that are saying, "Hey, Chicano and Chicana is not like talking about everybody. It's not it's not encompassing all of our people." So they're adding an X to it, which is a whole different. Even with me. Like forty one, I'm like, damn, we're cool, just yeah, 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 Chicano, Chicana, that's yeah, everybody, yeah. right? And yeah. it's like, no, actually, LGBTQ that we're we're talking about yeah. them in that in that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 continuing to like adapt and see, and know, that's that's beautiful. Grow, yeah, right, right. Yeah, and those conversations, kind. I think, are healthy because it's yeah. like we're naming, we're still naming ourselves. Yeah, and if we can't if we can't name ourselves, if we're, we're waiting for somebody else to name us, that's, yeah, that's, that's where it goes all bad. That's where it goes all bad. Somebody could put their own leash on you yep. and call you their dog, and yeah, no, and that that's far. I didn't even know that, so that's t- thank you for that. I didn't know that. Um, 
I want to get a little bit circle back more to him as a topic instead of a. I'll keep talking. So I have to have these notes here to keep myself on track. Let's do it. Let's do it. So after, after he gets out of the Navy, he becomes a teacher basically just to feed his family. He was never really, your father never really had a goal or a dream to become a teacher. Never, no. never. So even the GI Bill was like, oh, what? Like I can go to school. Like school was never, college was never. Yeah. So the GI Bill was like this fell on his lap and he ended up at um, San Diego city college and he wanted to be an artist. He wanted yeah. to be, a, he actually wanted to be a cartoonist. Yeah. He wanted to be a cartoonist for Disney. So he wanted to be like a cartoon artist. So this is late fifties. So it was Damn. Disney was popping. So what if snow white was from the block? Know, you know right? what I'm saying? Had her eyebrows drawn on and she was just like, what's up animals? What's up fool? Like Cinderella with two R's. Yeah, it's Cinderella with two R's. There you go. Cinderella. <laughs> Yeah. And she had those slip on shoes on with the fucking <laughs> the little China, bow on the, the little China, yeah. little China flat. <laughs> that would have been your pops' version of the mm-hmm. No, that's fire. Um, yeah, Disney would have definitely not fucked with them more. If they would have, they would have put them in a back dark room and been like, just draw this. Yeah, it was great. He he would send in um <clears throat> I remember seeing his old sketchbooks. He really? Was, it was his his ability to draw was ridiculous. Like yeah. he was um and, and the way that he tells it, that he went, he stumbled into just like fine art was, he was at San Diego City College and he just smelled turpentine coming from a hallway. And he went, and what's going on in here? And yeah, yeah. They, that was where the fine artists were using all their print, their oils to just do still lifes and, and, and nudes and all that stuff. Yeah. So he, that's how he kind of went from um, illustration into fine art. So you met me and the homies and you know we don't know any of these words. So what's the <laughs> difference between... Between fine art, now don't 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 give me the world's definition. <laughs> Talk to me, right, like, right, right. Like between fine art, illustration, and cartooning. Okay, so for what we're talking about, illustration and, and cartoons would be the same thing. So okay. it would be it would be illustration. So it, back in the day when they did the, the cartoons originally, each each drawing was done one at a time. Nothing was digital; everything was hand drawn. Yeah, the fine art would be like I said, like still lifes, nude paintings, it, like your Picasso. Yeah. Your Picasso. And then everything else, illustration, which he wanted to do in the beginning to make money, which would have been like a Disney, basically like yeah. a Disney artist. So like a cartoonist. He loved, he loved like um, comics and stuff like that. So that's how he got into it. Yeah. Is the, the comics. So that's where he want, he thought there, that's where the money would be at. So he stumbled into fine art and then ended up wanting to do that. So still not even thinking about teaching. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember um, him saying that he was taught by, is it, am I using the right word by saying they were classically trained, mm-hmm. the artists from Germany? Yeah. Okay, so what exactly does classically trained mean? For the so homes? that came later. So after after San Diego City College, he got into, um, it, it used to be called California College of Arts and Crafts. It's in Oakland. They have a, they have a, a site in Oakland and San Francisco. Now it's called CCA, California College of the Arts. And basically um, when Hitler was um running amok in germany there was a an art school there called the Bauhaus, and it was like a new kind of um philosophy on art it was it was abstract it yeah. was functionality there was a lot of talk about balance and rhythm in, in yeah. terms of composition so when hitler was going crazy in, in europe um a lot of those Bauhaus professors came yeah. to to the united states and a lot of those professors ended up teaching at uh, ccac <clears throat> so his influence that Fuck. he got his classical training came f- directly from the Bauhaus professors. So 
his whole understanding of color and balance and value and composition and functionality with fine art came directly from there, from those professors that he had. See, that's that's wild to me. And one of the reasons why that's wild is because I know the Nazi party basically made it into an environment to where if you had any opposing ideals or even words to say, you would be like severely persecuted. Right. When I say persecuted, I don't mean like people would cancel you online. Oh, no. I mean, like your wife would get a box with your fucking thumb in it right. and nobody would know what happened to you. So when it came to people of influence like teachers and politicians and just other entertainers, maybe like they got rid of all that rid shit of, yep. through violence and fucking just harsh right. shit. Right. And that's wild to me to know that your father's a result of those actions. Right. Like that's, that's fucking They would have not met otherwise. Yeah. There was no way that they would have went. And I would see somebody like the German artists who know persecution and who know that type of, of, uh, you know, what do you call it? Like just uh rebelliousness. Yeah. yeah. Like, so they would link with, with the Chicanos in that time frame because they were the same type of people in different parts of the world. That makes sense. And that's wild. To yeah. Me. Yeah. See, like, that's why I called you. <laughs> See? Um, so he gets trained there and they actually start, is that where Mala comes in or Mala F or whatever? Um, so that was in Oakland. He was in Oakland. And, um, so yeah, I, um, uh, after CCA, yeah, it was around that time when he was there because they were living in, in, in East Oakland at the time. Ooh, and they were living in East Oakland in the at the time. Right yeah. yeah. So, so that's kind of, this is um, early 60s. Okay. Or late 50s, early 60s. They so, go along as Cadillacs and shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they started, that's where they started linking up with other artists. He had met um, Esteban Villa, who was one of the co-founders of RCAF yeah. in San Diego. Uh, I think he was in the army. And so they were, they both came up here. Uh, and so they started networking with other artists in the Bay area. And that was kind of where, um, that, the, the, that idea of, of the collective started to grow out of that, those times. Where do these people meet at? Is there, there's no internet at this time. There's no like mass, uh, you do have printing for like paper and shit. Right. But like, where would they link up and meet one another this at? Was Is it just bars, at the school? Cafe, art gallery. Um, mm. He did make a lot of relationships on campus. That was okay. a big thing. And I, I, and I remember, I don't remember ever him like highlighting that, but it was a big deal that he met a lot of his, um, the people that he worked with on campus. Yeah. That they met in an education institution. And, then, yeah. you know, they, they would work together for years. But yeah, there was no internet. So it was cafes, bars, gatherings, art, a lot of art, art exhibits yeah. that were happening at that time. The beat, um, poets and, and that movement was happening in the Bay Area. So there was like a fast spotlight yeah. on the Bay Area at that time. Yeah. And that's, uh, the Panthers were like cracking at that time too, right? right. So, yeah. so they're able to see <clears throat> the people making things for the people. Definitely. Yeah. Right. The and Panthers had a big, a big influence on RCF. Yeah. Their breakfast program yeah. uh, was, was pulled directly from the Panthers program. The one that the breakfast for Ninos that they did, uh, RCF did. Well, um, not necessarily, not just RCF, but that was done here at the Washington neighborhood center. Oh, okay. Back at that time, it was pulled directly from the uh, breakfast program. Yeah. That the Panthers had started. Yeah. You see, and just, just while we're on the subject, I heard a conversation through this Cesar Chavez book. I think it's called, the Crusades of Cesar Chavez is the actual book. And there's, it was written by one of the, the right-hand men of him who were there through the time and also vetted through all the other people in the organization. And they said that 
whenever a Black Panther leader would have to leave their town and go to another town, they would meet with people like the Brown Berets or whoever was organizing basically the other crew on the street. Yep. They would meet with them and coordinate logistics and shit. Yep. Just like we do now today yep. when the writers leave one city, go to another. That was the only way. That was the yeah. safest way. Have a sit down. To do it because yeah. you're moving into this new environment you don't know anything about. And yeah, they had to connect. And even at that, that time, they had the FBI was going crazy with the yeah. provocateurs in there and, you know, undercover. It was rampant at that time. So that in itself didn't mean you were safe, but that was your best bet to try to connect with whatever chapter yeah. that town or that city had and figure out what the lay of the land was. Yeah. So you talk about the feds now. Youngsters talk about the feds like they were really fucking with the feds, though. <laughs> like the FBI was really putting plants in there, yeah. having them cause havoc and just relaying information and all that shit. So and that, that was a, yeah, that was a real thing that they I remember there was a story. Well, not jokingly, but my dad would always say, like, the plants were always the ones that wanted to do the most shit. Like, oh, if they were in a meeting. They would say, we should go. You know, we're talking yeah, about yeah. organizing or planning. He would say they're the ones that wanted to do the most violent stuff, the most aggressive action, and then see who would bite to those. Oh. And then that's how they would call people out. So th- it was it, it was shady what, what they did. Damn. You know, some motherfuckers got stomped out after the meeting. Oh, after yeah. That shit. Out, <laughs> yeah. Out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's wild. That's fucking crazy. And it's, you know what's wild to me, too, Not not just the fact that that happened, because I've, we know stuff like that already happens, but like we're talking about art, you know, and, and yeah. trying to better your people. We're not talking about like criminal organizations here. No, like, yeah. and there still wasn't active fucking like resistance to it from our social fucking structure. Like, yeah, they did not want to have any type of autonomy, like community autonomy from blacks, from browns, from nobody. They, they didn't, they thought they saw that as a threat. So even like the breakfast program or an art exhibit, like all of those things were literally threats to the system. They saw them as threats to the system. Here are these people who have been like docile and chill and trying to assimilate for, you know, forever since World War II. And now they're trying to stand up and and speak for themselves. They have their own point of view. No, we don't like that. So it was very systemic. You know, if you go back and you look at even just the leaders of the Panthers, you could see like dropping out left and right. Yeah. Um, court proceedings, a lot of legal BS that yeah. was thrown at them, you know, like all kinds of police engagement of like trying to set them up, just basically trying to set up the leaders to try to not get them out of the way. Yeah. And that's wild. And that, that really makes you, that really drives the point home of why the movement was so important because if it wasn't that big of a deal, if it wasn't like, if, if say Cesar was exaggerating, your pops was exaggerating then there wouldn't really be no active fucking like oh, combat no. to it. I think it was my, I, my, I remember a few folks from the RCF saying that Caesar never thought that there was a such thing as bad press. There is no such like, yeah. as long as people are talking about you yeah. and you're in the press, that's, that's all that matters. You can, you know, you could manipulate it as you go, but it's a scary thing to be, to not be talked about yeah. that. And that's why the importance, like you were saying earlier about the posters and the flyers, there was no social media. Like the March was the spotlight. They weren't going to get yeah. no coverage. There was no alternative news media. There were no cell phones. So the reason that the March was so impactful is because that is weeks of preparation. How are you going to ignore yeah. that? How is the news going to ignore that? Yeah. There's so many people. And so that, that was like their way of, of spreading the word is just continually being out there until they get noticed. Yeah. And it's, 
and before these marches happened, you wouldn't even know these people existed unless you dealt with them firsthand. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. still to this day, you go, you drive out to to yeah. Woodland right now. There's farm yeah. workers out there. I, you know, if you don't go out of, uh, outside yeah. the city, you're not going to know that that those realities are still are still out there. Yeah, and so basically, they're in Oakland. They start this this idea, this thing going on. They start to contribute to this already social change going on. And during that time, dude, it was literally everybody. The Native Americans took over fucking uh, Alcatraz. Alcatraz. You know what I'm saying? The black homies are doing their thing. The Chicanos are fucking shit up in the goddamn Safeway. You know, ain't, ain't nobody eating grapes. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it was cracking everywhere. And so they really got to put, you know, more wood on the fire. They they were the wood to the fire, the RCAF. And that was a big, that was talking about like exposure. That's why they had to get so he would say like their antics had to be so crazy because there was so much shit going on. Yeah, there was. Yeah. So you couldn't just be like, Oh, we're just organizing. No, you had to like go as artists, as performers, like performance art. They were talking about it. Like you would have to go out and draw attention. Cause if you're not, there was already so much shit going on. You're not going to get noticed unless you really are out there like kicking up dust. See, and that, that brings me to a current situation or current example. If you go on your Instagram feed right now, you'll see the same shit Mm -hmm. over and over and over. And the the mind is being fed the same idea. So in order for that to stand out, you have to have some type of like strategic advantage, you know, or some type of advantage to that, like stand out in a way. So that's where so that's where and why they have the Jeep and the whole like get up of uh, the pilots. That's right. why they would dress like that. Well, they, they, so they, yeah. So, so RCAF started out as Rebel Chicano Art Front, which sounds badass. Right? Yeah, it that does sound badass. Like, Damn, Rebel Chicano Art But like you said, they kept getting confused for Royal Canadian Air Force. And then they were like, well, fuck it. We're just, we, we're actually the Royal Chicano Air Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they just created this whole story around it. And that fit in perfectly with the attention because people didn't know if they were kidding or not, if yeah, they were yeah. serious or not. And then that, that was, they were able to joke with the system because they were like, wait, do you guys really got airplanes? You guys really? Yeah. Is there chain of command for real? And yeah. the whole time it was just a joke. Yeah. Just kind of throw them off the, you know, threw them off the trail. And just, just on the topic of planes or an air force, there is an actual, and I think why the government got worried about that is because in the early days of the movement of, of Cesar's movement, he would partner with uh, like priests and shit. Yeah. And so there was a priest that actually had his pilot's license and he had a little plane. You know the story? <laughs> no. Oh, dog. Oh, I'm about to teach you something. <laughs> Damn. All right. So this fool, uh, he has a plane and they're, they're having trouble getting their, their words to the people who are on the other side of the field, right. you know, or, or just in the center of the field. Right. So what they do is they get, the, and this is all, this is somewhere like the court documents and the right. tickets are from this. So I'm not making this shit up. Right. They get in this plane and the priest is flying it and Cesar's uh, talking out of the fucking with the bullhorn yeah. about helping their people and they're hurting their people by working while they're striking. And I think it might have been it's either the rose strike or the beginning of the grape strike. OK, I don't remember what it was, but they're like actively flying this plane around the fucking fields out the window with a bullhorn on some G shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like drive by fucking propaganda and shit. And when they land the plane, I think in Woodland, the sheriff is there to meet them and they give them tickets for disturbing the peace and violating the fucking flight height minimum. Because these fools are just out there fucking around. And so (laughs) that actually happens. And then like years later, these dudes pop up talking about they're the Royal Chicano (laughs) Air Force. So it's like, oh, fuck, this might actually be. We remember you. Yeah, we remember you. (laughs) 
where's the hangar with the planes and right, shit right, on? Like, right. what are they going to do? Right. So that's fire. And even when I heard that too, I remember like rewinding it in the booth painting a car. And I was like, did I fucking hear that right? Like, right. So this all happened like around the same time. And yeah. that's fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. That's tight though. So another thing I really wanted to highlight was how you had shared a story with me about how you didn't realize how influential he was, your father was, until you were an adult. And the story was you go to, I think it was a college or something like that, and you see him talking up front of like 150 students, and uh, you really thought to yourself, like, wow, he's he's like a general, mm -hmm. you know? So you remember the story? Yeah. Tell me? Yeah. So how does the general wake up in the morning? What does he have for breakfast? Well, that was so. How that do was, you get in the car to go to the fucking thing? Like that was so trippy about about that whole experience of going to the college, and I was already older. I want to say I was like in almost in high school already. Yeah. That's how long I was living in this nice like little bubble. I knew he was a poet. I knew he was an artist. I knew he was. Also, oh, this is after yeah. all. Yeah, I was already older. I had just never seen that side of him. That that that's that part of who he was. And it was. I remember it. It was um, the Chicano Latino Youth Conference at Sac State. And it, the was, year? it was, it had to be mid, mid nineties. Okay. And there were the, it was one of those big, huge classrooms that has like seats all the way up to yeah. the ceiling kind of thing. And, um, I was just in there and I'm like, okay, I know my dad's going to give him like, basically like a little pep talk. Yeah. And it turned into like this, like William Wallace gladiator. Like you got, you are the soldier. You, your education is your the fuel. Weapon. It's your, yeah. that is how, what's going to keep this movement going and don't let nobody tell you otherwise. And it was a trippy situation to to see that because, like you said, he was at home. He was just pops. Yeah, he was not that. He was not that dude. Wakes up with a cup of coffee, and I see people it. get pissed off when they ask me, like, yeah. "How's your boy? Was you? He was had you do shit all the time." I was like, "Nah, bro." He, he was like they think regular, you're on secret missions and shit. Yeah, yeah. just my regular dad. Like <laughs> yeah. I wake up, he be in his long johns yeah. with the coffee, watching watching the news. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like make your bed, mijo. Like oh, yeah. we got. Don't forget, you got to take the garbage out. It was yeah. nothing, nothing like that. Which which. That's why I think it impacted me so much when I saw that because I was like, damn, he's this is what he's doing. Yeah, when he's not when he's out working. You know, he's going. Oh, I'm going to work. All right, pop's going to work. Okay, yeah, that's what he was doing. You know what? What? What makes me trip about that story is that if the, if I was your dad, me now being a dad, I would think to myself like, oh, I'm gonna blow my son's mind with this shit, and he right. don't even know. No, yeah, yeah no. You know, it was what I'm the opposite. Yeah. He was like, no, that's he. He kind of he kept it away and I, I found out later on as as i started to get involved he had kept it away kind of on purpose because he saw how much it the movement took him away from his kids and his family yeah that he kind of opened up as he was older and he was like damn you know it was kind of like a godfather moment he was like i never wanted this never wanted this life for you you know like yeah. i wanted you to be at home he I, he knew i was an artist i already had kids at the time yeah and it was it was kind of a conversation like that where like I, I never wanted this life for you. It's a hard life. It's, yeah. It's that commitment is for life, and you're going to make sacrifices, and those sacrifices, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, is going to be your family. Yeah, and that that that's another reason why I wanted to sit you down here and talk because my father was very much a badass motherfucker. Right? There was no situation that he ran into that scared him. I never seen him quit. I never seen him flinch. Never seen him say no to nobody. And he takes on in a family of fucking of eight, nine, including himself, the financial responsibility for everybody. Right. 
And that kept him at work anytime and all the time he could because he needed to make money. Um, now, my dad's not the kind of guy to do something just to get by. He's going to make it count. So not only do you make the bills, but you make enough for the savings. You know, you make enough for the camping trip in three months. So now that we talk about how your father was doing all these things, that was one of the things I wanted to highlight, especially from you, you know, is that what did that, what did being Jose Montoya cost him? Like, did he ever tell you like, I would have did it this way. I would have did it that way. No, he didn't. I don't think, um, I think that might've been, I mean, it was crazy. He was a, he was a, um, a poet and there's, there's a line that I remember in one of his poems where he's, he says something like, um, there, there's paradoxes and contradictions that I'm not sure I want to set straight. So there's some things that I've, I've done, I've seen, I've been through, I've created, and it might be too much to kind of go back and try to unravel that. Oh knot, yeah. 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 You know? So yeah. I, I, I might've just took that, that line of that poem yeah. and then just kind of just put it on top of, you know, yeah. like to answer your question, that's kind of how I think about it. He had made that commitment. The time had passed, the, the things had been done and to go back and try to unravel and figure out, you know, was this the right or wrong thing to do? I think it would have, you know, it would have been, it would have been too much to try to try to figure out, you know, get to the core yeah. of, of the truth. But when he did tell me that I, I didn't want this, I don't want you to follow in my footsteps. That was a big eye opener to me. Cause I thought like when I, when I found myself kind of moving in those same lanes, I was, I was thinking, all right, I'm going to get called into the meeting. He's going to say, all right, this yeah. is, and that did happen to a certain extent. Like yeah. once he saw like, you he, were wasn't, in. he wasn't going to determine no one else was, I was like, this is the life I want. Then it was like, all right, well, come on now. And now we're going to break it down. This is what, now then missions started happening. Those conversations started happening, but it was very clear. He was like, I didn't want, I want you to do yeah. this at all. So I don't know. That says a lot about him. Maybe he was using me as kind of his reflective, you know, bouncing yeah. it off of me. And see, that brings me to kind of an intimate story that I have personally. I knew just by when I, when I first had kids, my first year was very blurry because it was substance abuse the entire time. But when I finally did get sober and I finally did get some clarity I remember feeling like fucking two inches tall because I was like physically, it gave me anxiety and I was like, oh my God. And like, I remember thinking to myself like, holy fuck, everything I've done up until this point, my kid's going to do too. And so like, I'm fucked. You know, all I do is paint graffiti, paint a couple cars here and there, but like, I'm not shit. I haven't done, I don't know shit. Like I can't set him up for that. Like, you know what I'm saying? And so that was after one specific event happened in my life that really kind of deaded graph for me, that was like the thought process during the week was like, what the fuck do I do now? Not only can I not do this and it's, it's, a, it's clear to me, I can't paint graffiti anymore, but who am I going to be to my kids? What am I going to do for my kids? And so obviously I'm not, I can't physically stop painting. Like I just can't do it. And so that's where the whole like, Let's see what this artist word means. Let's see where that goes. Let's see how we, if there's even a chance for us to do it. Here we are a year later with fucking few episodes into a podcast. Great people. You, you know what I'm saying? Like this shit really, I think God really had mercy on me. It was like, all right, dummy, here's this. And here's all the people to do it. And so like, I totally get that train of thought of his where he's like, I know what this took from me. I know what it takes. And I know you being part of me, being from me. If you get in this position, you're going to do what I did and probably even harder. Right. So I get why he would have that 
conversation with you or even that view toward you and what he was doing. Right. And so like, yeah, dude, that's, that's wild. That like the, our stories are similar, right. you and I, and they're two completely different things. And I think that that's also dope that we could meet here with the resources mm-hmm. to have this conversation and get it out to the public. If anybody ever was to look up your father now and really see who he was in, in my mind, your father's like the bookmark to a time period and a, and a whole movement two prong to the United farm workers, but also to art in our own city, you know, and they reminded me so much of a graffiti crew to the point to where the fucking feds were looking at them like the vandal squad and shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, and just everything else that comes along with it. Right. It's, it's very scary to me, but I'm also glad that it's happening. I get to have this conversation with you because it allows you to see the reality of the situation. No. And that's the, even just using the term bookmark. That's a great, I think that should be used more especially looking back at history, because I feel like even with Cesar Chavez, even with those, with those times, I think people we were talking about romanticism earlier. I think people try to just get so much juice out of those times as if there are not Jose Montoya's right now, Cesar Chavez yeah. right now, yeah. the Lotus Huerta's out there right yeah. now. They're, they're looking back so hard. Like it's a storybook fantasy that it can't happen again. Like it's not happening. Like it, it's it is happening. Yeah. And we're we're so blind to that because we want to. And that's that's that conversation of like even just with the marches now, with marches happening now, it's a different context now. We don't. Yeah. Technically, we don't need flyers. No. Technically, you don't even need an event. You could yeah. literally just blow up on social media. Yeah. And get all the information that you want out there. So it's a whole different beast. So even people are looking at flyers and marching as like this old. Uh, old version of how to do shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's a weird conversation to have because we're so attached to it. Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Malcolm X, you know, that's you go out in the, in the masses and that conversation is being had like, no, we don't need to do that. We'll just post it. We hit millions of people. The information is out there. People know what's up. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because it is happening, but there also is nothing like the physical human experience. Right. Exactly. When you, when we talked about, well, when I'm like, when I heard about, 30 minutes it took for everyone to cross the I street bridge. I thought to myself, what are the acoustics of that? What do, what do, how many shoes is that shit crossing on that bridge singing and talking? Cause I know what it, what the waterfront sounds like. I go there all the time. Now use your imagination and put fucking 50,000 people in that area. Social media ain't doing that shit video or not. So that's really where the catalyst comes into play is when you're there in the shit, in the streets, really seeing the fire in other people's eyes. Right. Social media is dope, but there ain't nothing like that fire from other humans, bro. And, and it and it goes it goes further than that in the sense of like there's a march, I'm gonna get shit on for this. There's a march that happens for Caesar Chavez every year. Uh-huh. I don't know who organizes it. And they march around. Caesar never did that. Caesar goes, you guys live in Sacramento. Yeah. California. Don't just walk around in a circle. If you're going to Sacramento, you're going to lobby for real yeah. change. You're going to, and that's what he did. So anytime that the, the UFW came to Sacramento, yeah, they would train the farm workers. They would, they would, the farm workers would have a list of which politicians they were going to go talk to and lobby yeah. to get yeah. rules changed. It wasn't just about walking around and holding up signs. Insane. It yeah. was literally to March. Okay, we're here now. And then we're going to spend the next two days 
lobbying at the Capitol for actual laws to be enforced or changed or amended or whatever. Yeah. It wasn't just to walk around, which now that's unfortunately what happened. Now it's just like a commemorative thing. Yeah. Which, you know, it depends on what you're looking at. If you're yeah, looking yeah. at it for the commemoration of Caesar, that's dope. That's that's awesome. But don't forget where you're at, where you live at, and why he did it in the first place. It was never just to walk. Yeah, and another thing I you just made a good point, and I wanted to just give a little extension on that point. Giving farm workers all these tasks on top of them having to meet their financial responsibilities. So every every single person in this movement sacrificed for this movement. It wasn't like there was a fucking savings account for these people to just well, the union, that was yeah. what the union, that was their job yeah. to, to take care of them. And that was another aspect of the RCAF. So when the farm workers would come to Sacramento, they would get the call and say, hey, we got 5,000 workers coming to lobby at the Capitol for two days. You guys need to, you guys need to put them up to, to sleep. You guys need to feed them, you know, thousands of, of workers for two days. That's just in itself. That has nothing to do with art. Yeah. That has nothing, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. they put down their brushes there, even though after making the posters and stuff for the, for the all actual night, staying action, up all night grinding, then it yeah. was cooking. Then it was housing yeah. and it was, you know, travel or, or medical, you know, whatever the, whatever the workers needed, yeah. they were there to just keep them in action to do the lobbying efforts. Fucking 5,000 people. Where do you, nobody's Abuelita has a house that'll fit 5,000 no, people. Where do was, you put all these people? Hustling. You just, yeah. Everybody, you had to ask everybody, everybody that you knew to house them and feed them. That yeah. was, you know. On top of already having a, a lifestyle that is not plentiful. Right. You know, right. Like, Man, that's that's fire. That's wild too, and that's I think that that's I think that it's tight that I found out about them through art, and it actually led me to led me to really want to like highlight what he did, especially because I've talked to you, I've had these talks with you, but like also too, man, I've seen this so I've seen work from them for all my life, and I've never known it was them, and so. I really honestly see them as like the first graffiti crew of the city, bro, because they would just get together. They'd make something happen. Now, now I don't know how other people do things, but that's how me and my friends do things. Right. You need this. You need that. Cool. I got this. Let's figure out how to get this. Let's figure out how to get that. And there was nothing that was going to stop us from achieving our goals. And that was, we were talking about this the other day of just the acronym, just with the RCAF. Like they were moving away from, I mean, it's like a crew, right? Yes. Yeah. They didn't actually put their name, their individual names, because for them, that was ego. It didn't matter who yeah. you were individually is who we are as a collective. So by putting RCAF, it takes away who painted it yeah. and it puts, it puts the emphasis back on the message yeah. of what's actually being shown. Yeah. And so right now it's like, Oh, who painted it? Oh, if Tomas painted it and eh. Oh, gay painted it. Oh shit. That's yeah, just, yeah. You know? So it took away that kind of like that ego aspect and just focused on the message at that time. That was the most important thing. It wasn't about who painted it. It wasn't a, it didn't matter if it was Montoya. It didn't matter if it was Villa. It was, RCAF, that, and then then you know to refocus on, on what they're talking about, what the message is. See, and I think the other part of that, just coming from, because I know they're street dudes, nobody could really get fucked with for painting it as an individual. It's kind of like now when you have a <laughs> case. They yeah, <laughs> when they say, like, you fucked that letter. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like now, <clears throat> I, that situation reminds me of a current one, where it's like some of the homies who have had cases here in town right. can no longer write their individual names, but they may or may not. Uh, you know, allegedly, right? Their crew names <laughs> yeah. and places. And it's right. like the homies who know, know, and everybody else is just like, whatever. But nobody can get attached to that one thing. And that's what I'm saying. It's like the, everywhere they were moving, everything about them was 
felt and sounded like a graph crew. Or maybe I'm just trying to make this up in my head, but I don't know. No, really I, I attached it. Shit, at that time, I was attaching it to to the Surrealists, which was a group of like artists from France. I even attached it to Wu-Tang Clan Ooh. when I was growing up because I was like, damn, everybody does have like, a was different the voice. I think he was. Jose Rizzo Montoya? Like Jose Digital? <laughs> digital? On the one? Digi, digi? That's tight. <laughs> that's how I equated because I was, I was a Wu head. So yeah, that's fine. I fire. was like, damn, RCF is like Wu Tang because each of the characters had their own voice, had their own perspective, yeah. had their own how they moved and everything. But but when it came down to working together, it was like, it was beautiful how they came Yeah, together. yeah. So just because we're just in the spirit of fun, and I know the homies listen to this too. If the RCAF was Wu-Tang and they were going to throw a video, how would that look? Because you know all of them. What would that video look like? What would they be wearing? Where would they be? <laughs> they'd have, uh, damn, they had, I always think of them in, uh, in bell bottoms. <laughs> and hella hair. And long hella hair. <laughs> Overalls all full yeah, of paint yeah, yeah, yeah. on top of, uh, at, over at, at, at um, Southside Park. Yeah. Yeah, it would probably be right there. Damn, lowriders and shit in the background <laughs> hopping. And well, shit they on. used to drive VW vans back in the they day. They did. Hey, yep. see, that's another thing. Your pops called them bombers. Bombers, yep. yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing is like that process of information is the same for us. Streamline information. Right. Your throw up is your bomb, right? right. So like just, it's all about streamlining information. It has, And it made sense because they had the signs. They had the flyers. They couldn't put in a car. They had to put in something big. So that yeah. when they pulled up, they slid open the doors and started handing out flyers yeah. and handing out posters. It just logistically, it made most. It made the most sense. Yeah, and the reason, another reason too is because the Army has a thing, or the at that time it was called the, uh, what is it, the Air Corps or whatever, mm -hmm. or the Army Air Corps. Um, they had a division that was called the Leafleteers, and basically they would go and fly over a city before it was bombed. And they would drop like fucking 10,000 flyers that right. say, if you're a civilian, get out of here. Right, right, right. Fire's coming or whatever the fuck. Right. So like they were doing the same thing. Yep. And I, I thought that was tight too, because this literally in, incorporated everything I had learned about and just knew. And I, I just thought it was a dope story. Yeah. But also too, the whole point of this is so that people that hear this can go back and look for themselves mm -hmm. and really let that, that spirit of fucking fighting fire is still there. That's it. I think that's the bottom line is that, that fight and it never died in, in any of them yeah the ones that passed the ones that are still here like it if you call them right now and say hey there's something going on they're going to be there that idea of fighting and in and an, an injustice it's it's not even a question yeah see and that's that's crazy to me that like so how many of the fellas are still around to this day do you think of the original core members there's Six. Six people? Yeah. And can you name them? Juanishi, Orozco, Rudy Cuellar, Juan Carrillo, uh, Stan Padilla, uh, Esteban Villa, and um, Juanito Antiveros. Yeah, that's The crazy. original core core yeah yeah see and that's uh that's mind-blowing to me that these people are still around because like the point you made earlier we're like it's not over right it's never really over there's always because we started out as minorities at a disadvantage the playing field will never be even right ever because they're they're 35 steps ahead of us 10 years in technology and just financial you know resilience ahead of us so there's always something to do from somewhere right and so like <clears throat> 
you know, if you are a youngster and you hear this and you really want to look into this, you can just look up on YouTube or Google. There's books. There's a few books that I've been able to find. Nothing audio yet because mm-hmm. that's how really how I take in my information. But YouTube it, dude. YouTube Chicano Park. YouTube everything. You'll be able anything Chicano movement, anything 196. Any basically, if the video has a do with long ass hair and like a low rider in it, that's part of this time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's tight, and I really want to close with uh just a clip from your pops that was really just dude it gave me goosebumps you know what i'm saying and i think um i think he sums it all up you know my whole reasoning for this and the idea so i'd like to play that clip now if that's cool Uh, some youngsters out there who call themselves Chicanos, but they see art as a cash cow, as opposed to a political thing that you use to better the plight of your people. You know, they they, they don't see that anymore. And I'm not so sure that we, uh, you know, are doing that as much anymore. You know, I, I thought that's why we formed the RCAF, I thought that's why we came together, to use our art in that way, to educate and facilitate and better the plight of our people. Never to go into the the galleries and the museums. You know, we've gotten there by virtue of the power of our work. And that concludes our episode for today. We are, have a dope day. And we are sponsored by The Loft or brought to you by The Loft. And we are Sacramento. And I'd like to just thank everybody for listening. And uh, hope you guys have a dope day. <laughs>